Whether you're a road warrior, harrier, or track purist, whether you came of age in the 70s as amateurism waned, the 80s and the rise of shamateurism, or the dawning of professionalism in the early 90s, there will be something for you in the latest installment of the Runner's Reunion Podcast. Along with co-hosts Ron Galuli and John Gorman, I'm Grant Whitney. Good morning. Today is March 5th, 2022. It is a sunny day for the three of us on the podcast who are in Massachusetts. Our guest today is in Austin, Texas, a man well known in New England, particularly in Rhode Island and in Massachusetts for his high school and college accolades and successes. Today's guest on the Runners Reunion podcast is John Murphy, a proud graduate of Portsmouth Abbey in New England class of 1977 and a graduate of Harvard College 1981. While John was at Portsmouth, he won the state cross country title sophomore and junior year. And there's a story involving an ankle related to his senior year campaign that I know we'll talk about. John set the outdoor Rhode Island state record in the mile in 412 as a junior and a consistent theme throughout the podcast uh, will be the joys and tribulations, injury and success that'll come through loud and clear. At Harvard, John was a 12 time letter winner, cross country, indoor and outdoors and continued running after college. Unfortunately, in 2005, at the Chicago Marathon, he suffered a stroke. And since then, and as part of his rehabilitation ongoing, he continues to be an advocate for all of us to recognize symptoms and uh, work towards uh, involving and engaging people suffering from stroke back in our community. John Murphy, welcome to the Runner's Reunion Podcast. Good morning. Thank you, gentlemen. So um, before, just a quick story or, or a quick check-in, because Bonnie Bell is getting bigger. Uh, Bonnie Bell, John, by the way, is John Gorman's uh, little Labrador. Um, how is, is Bonnie out for runs with you yet, John? I'm, I'm going to keep checking until we know for sure that, uh, you know, she's up and operational. Well, she's still too little to go for a run, but I am going to take her this after the beautiful day here. Um, so I'm going to take her to Wire Hill, which is a reservation, uh, and they have great trails there. So I'm going to take her there. We're going to go on a nice walk, get, get some sun. And uh, speaking of her, I gave her her favorite bone to chew on, which will last about an hour, which is at the same time as this interview. <laughs> so hopefully, perfect. Well, hopefully she won't be done too soon and bug me. So. <laughs> well john gorman since since you you've just been speaking and since you are the closest age contemporary to john murphy why don't you start us off and and help us begin the conversation uh, i the one thing i will say uh to tee it up for both of you is i understand that nine is a popular number in your respective families and hopefully that will come out loud and clear yeah so yeah so i'm from a family of nine and uh I guess, John, you are too. 
Yep. And you're right in the middle of the pack. I was a classic middle child, so. Middle child, okay. Like I told you earlier, I was the eighth child. So back in the old baseball days when they had a pitcher, uh, pitcher hit, I was and the catcher was eighth because he wasn't a good hitter. I was the catcher of the family. So eighth, eighth in line. But uh, you sent a nice picture of, uh, of you in the eighth grade at Portsmouth Abbey. Was that your first year at Portsmouth Abbey? Okay. Now, um, no, I was just thinking, I, I just thought of this. So when, when in ninth grade, did you run cross country in ninth grade? And when, cause we didn't, we didn't, we couldn't run varsity. I, I did run varsity as a, as a ninth grade. I did just start. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think you could. How did you do? I know you did well sophomore year. How, where did you place as a ninth grader? Like in the States. I think probably like fourth or fifth. I remember there were two Murphys from Middletown. There were Tim and Mike Murphy. Then there's a bunch of guys from Tollgate and Pilgrim. So I was, I was kind of in there. I, was, I remember, I think I, I won my class D championship. I was a bit of a prodigy, certainly. at big fish in a small pond at the time. I have the dubious honor of being from the smallest town in the smallest county in the smallest state. So some of my running accolades, I kind of have been humbled by how small the fishbowl I would. I grew up in. Yeah, because I ran for, you know, for St. Rayfields and, you know, we were a second to Pilgrim. Uh, that fre- Did you run the freshman states that we got second in and Pilgrim beat us? Did you run that or did you run the varsity race instead? I would have been in the varsity. because Okay. Okay. So thing is, our freshman team was so good, we could have probably ran varsity if they allowed us. So, but I didn't think that was, oh, you know what? That may have started, that may have started after the next year. Cause you were a year, you were a year behind me. No, I, I do remember, cause I, I remember there was a whole bunch of like gyrations about my eligibility. Cause I was, I, I, won, uh, I won the league championship in the prep school league. So there's some, as an eighth grader, there was a whole bunch of like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do with this kid? But I do remember I, I ran varsity once I was a freshman, I was looking eagerly to be able to count because part of what so that referring back to that picture that I sent you, I thought it was so telling, even though we're not that old. I've I just reflected upon the extraordinary advances in technology and different there I was running on a grass track and I'm wearing leather shoes that had like a leather sole that didn't have screw up, but they were 1945 vintage from my dad. My dad was all American at Notre Dame. I didn't know that he was running. And he heard that I had a track meet and he said, do you have any spikes? I said, why do I need spikes? And he handed me those things. So I can't believe I was running. Was that the first time you ran or did you train for this? I was, you were required to go out for a sport. So I just quit football. I grew up in this little town. I always wanted to be a part of it. And I had to quit Kiwi football because I just started going to school at this prep school. So I was just skinny, nervous kid. I was required to go out for a sport. I just quit football in my hometown, so I just kind of wandered onto the cross country team, and and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm winning varsity races, and my recollection, I didn't. My motivation for running wasn't that I was good at; it was just that I was starting to fit in, and I was so frustrated. A lot of my training was just, and this continued throughout the rest of my life. We'll talk about this later, perhaps was just, I was so anxious and insecure. I was a skinny kid with braces trying to fit in. 
And running was just such a great release for me. And so even later in my high school career, I was, you know, competing at the state level, competing at the national level. And I was overtraining probably because I was just so, you know, we were like doing four years of Latin, reading Camus in French, taking AP courses and being good at it wasn't what was keeping me running. It was just, it was such a release for me and continued to be over the course of my life. So John, um, I, I started running late in my high school career and you had graduated the year before, but I, I just remember our team talking about these legend, this legendary runner from Portsmouth Abbey and how you had won the cross country States beat Tom Ratcliffe. And I think uh, your senior year, um, I did hear the story about running on a broken ankle. And I think Chuck Darty might have won that year. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, we, we had heard about all the stories on our high school team and, uh, tell us a little bit about, I guess, some of those championship races and some of those duels with some of the top competitors in Rhode Island. I still get, sometimes get butterflies when I, I've been back in New England. I can look at that big lawn of Our Lady of Providence. That was such a great cross country course. And, and my recollection was of, of great battles with Tom Radcliffe. And what was just so different about running at OLP because I was, I was in a small league. So, so much of my training and competing in dual meets, I mean, I was breaking course records. I was 40 minutes, 40 seconds to a minute ahead of the second place run. So I never actually ran with anyone. So just, it was just such a surreal experience to be on that lawn at OLP. And all of a sudden there was pressure. There were people looking at you and there were guys like Tommy Ratcliffe nipping at your heels. And I was just so unsophisticated and untrained as a competitor that a lot of times I was just flying blind and that's so much how I ran. I just, I remember that, that course had like a half mile loop. It started off a long uphill. You swung around, you come back up. And I swear I was just trying to outrun people to the, the first hill. And then I tried to outrun them to the second hill. If anyone was with me at that second time up the hill, it was like, oh God, now what do I do? And, so those are some battles. It, uh, John, it, uh, did you break your ankle in the race? For those of us who are just hearing the, the legend here, or were you entered in that senior year? Did you, were you running on a previously broken ankle at that state championship? Well, this is another thing that I'd mentioned to John, how much has changed in the diagnostics and the treatments. I had been basically hobbled, wasn't able to train as well. And they had taken x-rays and I remember hearing something about a stress fracture, but it was back then it was just a theory. And there was some sophisticated type of x-ray technology called a laminogram. So this was before MRIs or CAT scans. So this was some, so we had gotten something and the doctor had warned my dad because he was a client and my dad was a lawyer and attorney. So you can just imagine how nervous an orthopedic surgeon was talking to a lawyer about his son's ankle. And so he had warned me that he, he wasn't certain, but he was worried that I had a stress fracture. We didn't know what that was, but damn it, I had won the States as a sophomore and a junior. I had won the National Junior Olympics as a, as a junior. And so I was just hell bent. I, I, this is something no one had ever done and I wanted to do it. And back in this time, you know, you didn't have trainers that travel with the team. I, I, I also sent John a newspaper clipping that had a picture of me 
and I'm looking at the tape job. That's something that I did myself in the back seat of a car. It's just replicating something that I had seen father be in the training room at Portsmouth that we do with the basketball players. So God knows what I did to myself then. It set me back for two years, if not more, the rest of my career. So it was, it was just one of the many knucklehead things I did over the course of my running career that I now regret. So it made a great story, but it, it definitely set me back certainly two years I did. So when I went to Harvard, because of that, when I went, when I went to Harvard, I wasn't even sure if I'd be, even be able to run. So maybe when we talk about Bill McCurdy, we can talk about how Bill McCurdy salvaged my career in a, in a conference room at Beth Israel Hospital with Dr. Robert Roy McGregor. So make sure we look back and talk about how, how Bill McCurdy got Absolutely. me off, off the sidelines. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just, let's just see if we can tie up Portsmouth Abbey. So you had, again, the, the roller coaster of success and injury. And um, I guess mentally that had to be, uh, did, you, did you finish that race senior year cross country? Or, or was it a DNF? I did. I remember I had, I had to, I stopped. I was neck and neck with Charlie. I felt so badly for that guy, Charlie Dark, because this was this great duel against the so-called legend, John Murphy. Here was this kid wanting to run against John Murphy. And it was a stretch run. There was a downhill and there's a road that comes across. It was about a hundred yards from the finish line. And I remember that I kind of misstepped when I hit that road and I stopped and that poor kid, Charlie darted, God bless him, turned around and kind of looked at me nervously. And, and he just kept going and I kind of limped. So he finished, I finished second, but he and I were head and shoulders above the rest of the field that day. And it was such a great race. So I felt to this day, feel badly that that guy's what should was that be. that road? Yeah, there's so a road that, that comes that, that paved road that kind of cut in between, divided it. That's where you hit the foot. Right. I was kind of, I was just barely staying with him, but I stepped a little funny when we stepped onto that and kind mm -hmm. of like came to a dead stop there and then kind of limped across from there. Mm -hmm. So that should have been a stirring win for that guy, but Charlie darted because that was a great run he had on that day. So I regret that he didn't have full measure of glory that day because a stupid John Murphy was in, shouldn't have been in that race in the first place. So it was only like what, a hundred yards from 200 yards from the finish. But when it happened, it was close to the finish. Yeah. It was right there. So did, so did that stress fracture then become a compound fracture as a, you know, based on that, on that incident with the road? Is that, is that what ended up happening? Yeah, it was kind of pretty much a mess. So it was, it was like a long time. That's why when you asked me about outdoor season, my senior, I don't. I, There's nothing really. I, I just, I well, this is it, well, John. It's this is a marvelous, um, you know, uh, segue into the, the topic you had just mentioned. And because you know, moving on from Portsmouth Abbey, um, Harvard is the, your next chapter, and. Uh, Many of us around here know something about the legend of Coach Bill McCurdy, uh, but it sounds like there is really a, a, a very early on situation with you and Coach McCurdy related to your ankle. Can you fill us in a little bit on that? Sure. For those who never met him, Bill McCurdy was kind of a combination of Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. He's this big, tall, blue-eyed, you know, the cleft, the cleft chin, the square jaw, the who wore sweats with a towel around his neck. And yet he was this incredible Svengali of a teacher who could get inside your head. And so long as you 
invited him in there, he could pull your strings and get you to do incredible things. But one of his greatest tactics, even in rhetoric and argument, is he could get you running in circles, arguing his very point. The first time I ever saw this was in the conference room at Beth Israel Hospital, when I had been called up from Rhode Island to come and have a meeting with Arthur Boland and another doctor, Robert Roy McGregor, who was the first orthopedic surgeon who started the thing called orthotics, which were big back then. And the topic of conversation was whether or not we could give medical clearance to allow John Murphy to run that fall in cross country. And after however long the conversation was going about laminograms, MRIs, stress fractures, bow legs, strained muscles, likelihood, percentage of possibilities, Mercury said, well, I'm a, I'm a little confused here, doc. Now, how far is it from here to Brighton Ave? The doctor, McGregor kind of said, well, I don't know, coach. It must be like, I don't know, 200, 300. So McCurdy said, well, is it about a quarter of a mile, would you say? This doctor was like, where's he going with this? And slowly he kind of reeled him in. And I'm watching this one out of the corner of my eye. I go, where is he going with this? And said, well, if the fire alarms go off and we all dash out of here, who's going to get there first? You, Doc Bowen, me, or Murph? And the doctor's got laughs, laughs, of course. And I'm kind of watching. I'm a young, snarky teenager watching this guy tool this doctor. He said, Well, of course, Murph will get there first. And McCurdy goes, And aha, will his ankle be broken? And he said, No. And he said, Well, there, now we know it. That's what I needed to know. So you're telling me he can run a quarter of a mile and he can run it as fast as you want? No. How often can he do that? Can he do that about once a week? And there sealed my fate for the next four months. McCurdy had me on an exercise bicycle or in a swimming pool, pedaling, pedaling. So here was this brash young supposed legend who couldn't run cross country. He kept me completely separated from the team, but I would report to the, the physical therapy room where I would do my training in the pool or on a bike. And on Fridays, he would have a time trial for me in the quarter mile. And that was the only running I was allowed to do my entire freshman fall. Not surprisingly, my quarter mile time went down from maybe 56 down to 53. And by December, my mile time had dropped from 412 to 407. Therein encapsulates what it was like to be coached by Bill McCurdy. It was his methodology. I have, a, I have a story told by a contemporary of yours that is right on this point. And, and if you'll indulge me all, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to read it. There is a story about McCurdy that he had on the same team, a miler of mediocre ability and a sprinter of potentially first rate quality, but who was underperforming. The miler noticed that McCurdy was giving him much more attention in his efforts to break five minutes than he was giving the sprinter and asked him what was going on. McCurdy said, you are redefining what you are able to do. He is an ex high school star whom things came easily to and who refuses to face squarely the demands of a higher league. If he is underperforming as badly in his academic work as he is at track, then he will fail out anyway. I have done what I can. This is now the last warning that I can give him. And the sprinter did fail out. And the, the speaker goes on to say, whatever my own limitations and failures, 
I am increasingly grateful for the fact that I was connected to this gentleman and to this man that embodied this wisdom. How does that comment strike you, John? That is McCurdy to a T. That's and, and his interest in people as individuals, not just as athletes. In our preamble, I explained that I, he was renowned for arguing for locker space for his athletes. And some people thought that he was like anti-Title IX at the time. And he wasn't arguing that women shouldn't get lockers. He was just opposed to cutting the, limiting the number of lockers that he could have for runners at Harvard. And the athletic department was constantly berating him about this. And one of his things, I remember he, this is again where he would he'd spin the room around and like, well, you let Murph use the library. His way of saying, if someone wants to work hard, God damn it. They can come down to a locker, get a locker at Harvard. As far as he was concerned, he didn't care how fast they ran it. They wanted to work hard. He wanted them as a human being and, that's why generations of people remember whose names you will never know will continue to feel like Bill McCurdy was a, a pivotal influence on their success in life. I guarantee you that. So, uh, John, I, I had only, I think, met him once or twice. And uh, this memory sticks in my mind where I was running or went to the indoor track at Harvard where I didn't belong. Um, but somehow... Uh, maybe I was with Tom Rackless, but he was so welcoming. We didn't belong there. He probably should have thrown us out. And I said, wow, this, I, I just met him for a few minutes. I said, boy, I, I wish, I wish he was my coach. To, uh, to continue on the Harvard theme, now that you've made the transition, you now have a coach who somehow, some way is going to find out what you can do and what you can't and get you to a point, which he obviously did um, from 56 to 53 from you know four whatever to 407, 412 to 407 on a on a quarter mile a week kind of thing. Um, just to resketch your, your you know the profile there, you were a, a Heps cross country champion um, uh, at Harvard. You uh, went to the NCAA's in cross country at Harvard. You are a 12 time letter winner at Harvard cross country indoors and outdoors co captain or captain, I should say, I, I think at least twice. And today you are still fourth all time uh, uh, clocking the mile uh, indoors at Harvard with the, the lead on that, um, 357, Kieran Tuntevay, a recent graduate running for Bowerman Track Club now, represented Thailand and Tokyo. And your 402 is right smack dab in the, in the center right there. What was it like beyond McCurdy um, how did you feel about the team? There had to be some classic individuals, two names that come to mind that I know uh, more by reputation in one case, others more, much more personally. And they kind of represent two different kind of uh, slices of, of Harvardia, if you will. Eddie Sheehan, a Quincy boy. Um, and then we've got Adam Dixon, uh, a classic miler. Um, and those are just two a very small sample set of your teammates or your contemporaries. What was that experience like coming from, as you say, the smallest school, the smallest county, the smallest town in the smallest state, now to Boston and Cambridge? Well, both of them are representative of the pretty broad spectrum that you get competing at a place, competing and training at a place like Harvard. And they're both very compelling memories for me because 
Eddie Sheen was a fantastic teammate who many times over kind of saved me from myself. I, I spoke earlier of that tendency to just want to just blast. I think I had seen Maurice Yifter at the, uh, the World Games mm. up in Montreal. I had finally gotten back to running and I was just so excited. Forget about it. I was doing well. I just was so excited that I could run. I remember it was, I think it was the summer of my sophomore year. I had gotten one of those classic Harvard summer jobs. I was a field monitor, which basically meant I was supposed to check to make sure the sprinklers came on in the morning and that I checked the field permits for the softball players that they had the correct field. And I was also training with a guy. Here's another New England Roadrunners might remember a guy named Rodney Pearson, who is a graduate student at the Harvard Business School studying computer science. Rodney was one of the first guys to do like computer security. And he was like a 220 something marathon and just a distance junkie. And he and Eddie Sheehan were constantly on me to get my easy D as opposed to my intensity. And Rodney got me to the point where instead of doing a water ton, next thing you know, I was going longer and slower out to Newton and got me into marathon shape. So the first marathon I ran was actually that summer. But again, this is kind of remarkable to remember back then you weren't allowed to do things that I had to enter as John O'Brien, not John Murphy under the greater, I better, I'll send you a picture of that. I'm, there's a picture of John Murphy finishing the Montreal Marathon in a Greater Boston Track Club, running under an assumed name. And Eddie was furious with me. Well, it, 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 he has a heart of gold. And to get him uh, exercise like that really had to be something. So he, he obviously felt... Um, well, he, well. He, play, he would play with him. I mean, I mean, come on, man. You finally were like, you're doing something stupid like that. Come on, man. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. No, that's right. And rest in peace, good friend. But uh, no, no, that's that that's something. John, you had a question. Yeah. So, um, John, I know you back from well, way back from Rhode Island, and uh, I just remember the battles you had with Tommy Mortimer. And I think in cross country, you know, you had the upper hand. Um, I guess you guys didn't meet battle that much in track. You know, like you said earlier, <clears throat> but going uh, moving on to Harvard and he went to Northeastern who had the upper hand, uh, you know, collegiate wise in cross country and track. Uh, how often did you guys meet up? Well, I think, it was, I think he definitely got the better me on the track. I don't think it was the college cross country was a completely different sport than high school. I remember, I think I, when I was fishing through the archives, I found, maybe I'll send it to you guys. A, I think one of my first race at Franklin park, I think I ran 29, it was, it was one of the races in there. I ran 29.50 for the 10K course at Franklin Park. And I was in sixth place and was third guy on the team. So that gives you some sense of what it was like, the quality of the distance runners back then. Obviously, Tommy Mourner, I don't think was up there. I remember seeing a few names. Mark Kimball was up there in the mix as a, as a freshman. But on, once it came to the track, Tommy had that raw speed that I did not have. And again, after hurting my ankle, I was just, it seemed that the speed stuff was the stuff that I had the toughest time. So that I think I may have nipped him a couple of times. And I think probably he got caught up in the mix in those mile battles in my sophomore year when Bruce Bickford and I were supposedly chasing for the four minute mile, which when you talk about McCurdy and team stuff, the thing I think about 
that day, the goal wasn't to break four minutes in the mile. The goal was that I was, we were competing against, McCurdy thought we had a chance against Northeastern that year. So he had me entered in the mile, the thousand and the two mile relay. So that, that brings me to a topic, John, that I'm, I'm curious for your reaction to. We all are old school. We're used to the idea of, uh, you know, certainly in, on the track side, that you had dual meets, that you had those things that counted. And, and nowadays, the dual meet is an afterthought, if it happens at all at the collegiate level. Do you have any, have you thought at all about that or reacted um, or kind of seen it or, or have had any thoughts on that topic? I have, again, I, I kind of think about it in, in, with a divided mind because clearly the sacrifices that we made to, run, to double, if not triple, clearly increased the likelihood of injury or constrained individual performances. And yet I would argue that McCurdy's technique was over the course of the week, he would have on the, he had like this huge bulletin board and he'd have the ranking of the individuals on the teams we were competing against and his projections of how many points we could get in each event. So it was a completely different orientation to many coaches, to certainly anything that I had had. So you had a job to do that week, and that was to make sure that you could get the points that McCurdy had for you projected up on the board. And to be perfectly candid with you, one of the things that I love about college sports, even though like, you know, Nike is in all over, the, all over these athletes and stuff, that they are not fun to watch because nevertheless, there's 18, 19 year old kids who are struggling with a course, breaking up with their girlfriends. And that, at least for me at that time, that focus was such an escape from the pressures in life. And I would argue that the incentives that McCurdy laid out for us to compete on behalf of our teammates and for the greater team, I would argue motivated you to push yourself beyond levels that you might otherwise had pursued if you were just trying to qualify for the nationals in your event. And that brings me back to my memories of my original interactions with Adam Dixon at Harvard, because he hmm. and I had gone to high school together, but I had tormented that poor kid to come out and run because he did not like running. He wanted to throw the javelin. I had first seen that stride, you know, talk about seeing Adonis on the plains of Portsmouth. You know, I knew that I wanted that kid as a teammate. So I dragged him from the wrestling team to run, to get on the track team, but he, Adam threw the javelin and we finally got him to run the half mile, which he hated. When he first came up to Harvard, he went out for, for soccer and didn't want to run cross country. So it wasn't until I think probably November or December that McCurdy and I had tormented that poor kid to come out. And so Adam was kind of a, a bit of a lost soul when it came to whether he wanted to run or not. But what motivated Adam was a, and what motivated me at that time too, that kept Adam on track was that we were competing together on a two mile relay team that, again, this comes back to McCurdy. McCurdy got us all riled up because the meet director at Milrose would not put us in the seated hit of the two mile relay. And that got us so riled up that next thing, you know, we're, we're competing against Villanova at the IC four A's and we got a qualifying time that got us into nationals. And he had us so whipped into a frenzy. Next thing you know, we're off to Cobo Arena and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And somehow we managed to finish third in that race. And that team had a guy named Thad McNulty, 
John Chafee, who was son of the Rhode Island, then Rhode Island Senator John Chafee, Adam Dixon and myself, a more eccentric band of brothers you could not possibly have imagined. But it was that experience that kept Adam on the Harvard track team and that kept me motivated to run through what were some tough times. I wasn't so sure that I could compete in the mile at the nationals. And the thought that of going there and, and not bringing along my training partners and friends just didn't sit well with me. So I, when I think back about why I never broke four minutes, my own thing, well, geez, if I'd run the, if I'd run the individually that year, maybe I could have done it, but I'm greatly relieved that I had the experience that I did have by competing on a relay team with Adam Dixon and John Chaffee and Thad McNulty. And in doing so, got All-American in track. And the year later, finally beat that goddamn Villanova team at Milrose Games with Adam resting their lead from Don, the, the behemoth Don Page. Wow. Wow. That's, that's when Adam Dixon kind of emerged on the scene. Just as a, a, a quick footnote for our listeners, Adam Dixon, um, he has Harvard, had Harvard records, 800, 880, 1,000, 1,500, one mile. His 1,000 meter time, certainly upon his graduation at 219.8, was an American record. He did that in a dual meet, a tri-meet. Uh, his 1,500 meter time was uh, 343. Um, and he's an, you know, won the, uh, the HEPs 1,500 three times, 80, 81, and 83. Uh, John Murphy, I wanted to read you something because, um, and it's, I think, even more poignant now because I did not know at all that Dixon went to your same high school. And the description you just had um, it w- was remarkable. And then I think we should probably move on to the marathon, which, by the way, you ran incredibly well, even in your own right or I should say even post-graduation. But anyway, um, Adam Dixon is quoted, even though they will try to buttonhole anyone willing to listen to them to say that, that it is me that is being ducted rather than them, just goes to show you there's no justice in life. To some extent, I agree with them. If John Murphy had my legs instead of the Rumpelstiltskin things he did have to totter around on, he probably would have broken the world record. Certainly, he had the heart for it. Uh, that sounds like uh, a little bit of uh, mutual love there, mutual respect for sure. That's Adam in a nutshell. So, John, as we move on from um, maybe it was the, the influence of Eddie and, and uh, this other gentleman, um, post-college, post uh, you ultimately ended up moving up to the marathon. Um, and am I right thinking that um, even in your 30s, you ran somewhere in the order of like 234, something along those lines? Which also telling, well, there's a story in there, but also the fact that I finished 25th tells you how, how vastly different marathons are internationally now. Where were you going with that? So I just was just trying to you know, set that parameter. So is that, that's your high watermark roughly in, in the marathon. And did you, you know, post-college and all that, now we've got somebody like Gorman who's run how many, I forget how many Bostons you've run consecutively. And- 22. Okay. And were were you on that same kind of trajectory, John? Was this something that after college you said, okay, I'm going to, you know, keep training and keep going? Or did life intervene and you stopped? And did you, you know, get back into it? And you had the injuries, of course, which, you know, seemed so, so critical. 
what was your what was the trajectory running wise after school after college a bit of a yo-yo unfortunately i remember that i had a conversation with bob 70 about maybe joining athletics west but i just was not physically in a state where i thought that might even be feasible as a life decision so i ended up coaching and teaching high school in washington dc and i happened my sister was there running and joe lang was a great wonderful coach let me run George with down. Yep. Yep. So by day I was a high school teacher and I would drive over to McDonough arena and, you know, lace them up and run with the Georgetown team. So I've, I now in retrospect realized what I was gaining there, what kept me to running was being part of a team and that absent a team center, it was hard to sustain running. And I had a love hate running after that. I would kind of had an on, on, on again, off again relationship with running and also with my health. I had started working for a software company and I was traveling all around the country, which didn't lead to a healthy lifestyle. I was eating like crap, wasn't running at all. Kind of got what I would call the roof over the tool shed. So I would gain 10 or 15 pounds and then I would get kind of disgusted with myself and would kind of use running to kind of get back in shape, but would probably like, just my knees and my ankle would just start to give out and I'd get pissed off. And I'd go back to the McCurdy style. I'd get back on an exercise bicycle and uh, kind of get lose the weight, start running again, but was wary of competing either because I just would be so dissatisfied or disgusted with the results. And it wasn't until the 90s that I was out on the West Coast on a, on a software trip and I was doing a software install at the Kate School in Carpinteria. And I went out and all of a sudden, I think because of the warm weather, went out and did a 12-miler. About two weeks later, I was in San Luis Obispo and there's a bridal trail. And I just kind of went out, God knows how far I ran. I was just so, just so euphoric that I could run again that all of a sudden, I just by coincidence, stresses in life, find myself that I was able to run more than two hours long. And it wasn't until about a month or two later, I was on a business trip in Chicago I was staying with a buddy, Sully, who had run at Georgetown. He was a United Airlines pilot, and he knew the meet director and somehow got me up in the lead pack, and I just followed, and I was just happy to be running again. And it wasn't until we were in, like, the, the hotel lobby bar with John Gregoric and Eamon Coughlin, of all people. It felt so great to be even rubbing elbows with that crowd again. And, and Gregoric would say, Murphy might have finished in the money. I didn't even know what had happened. I'd run... 233, 234, and finished 25th. So I was just thrilled to be able to run again and to be some, somewhat back in the company of runners. That was great. But I'm, I'm, I don't remember the exact details, but I think by the time of Boston Marathon, I was injured again and probably only mass, managed to break three hours at Boston that year and had a similar life experience thereafter, on again, off again, gaining weight, life stress, not a healthy lifestyle of traveling on the road, having a buttery clam chowder and a bacon and cheeseburger for room service and a couple of beers in the hotel bar and then more beers at the Plowing Stars in Cambridge that I probably should have had over the years. You know, life gets in the way, doesn't it? And, and so for people like Gorman, who have been that, you know, even with the beer in the boot, um, you know, you know, the, the, the notion of the consistency and never stopping to train, there's, there's, there's some, there's, 
philosophy and, 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 and physical all wrapped up into that rather than the purging and the binging and the, so to speak, uh, of that, you know, out of fitness, into fitness, out of fitness, into fitness. John, in the interest, John Murphy, in the interest of time, I'd, I'd, I'd love to make sure that we cover, because it's so critical to your story, um, the events around the Chicago Marathon again, um, now a decade plus later in 2005. And quite honestly, how it's, uh, that experience has shaped your life uh, going forward and, and even with us being here today. Sure, I've told this story to 100 people and hope it will strike a card. Was, because it's, it's certainly been effective for the Heart, heart and Stroke Association to find it to be an appropriately poignant cautionary tale for the young invincibles that what basically the, the what and the hows of my stroke essentially play out like this. I had been training here in Austin, had finally gotten with a running group, was running consistently, running repeat half miles on a track, run, doing long distance runs on the weekends, that kind of thing. I just hoped that, let me see if I can qualify for Boston. So I had a, a, a pace chart. I knew what I wanted to do. Wasn't sure about whether I'd, the right thing to do because I was on a business trip, but I jumped in anyway. And around mile 23, I started to go blind in one eye, started seeing spots and dots. And of course, being an idiot male athlete did exactly what any male athlete would do just ignore it. And most importantly, after that, don't tell anyone because it'll go away. And so it did go away until about nine o'clock later that night. Uh, I was out with my sister who had also run the marathon that day and we were bowling. I remember Clemens was pitching for the Houston Astros. So we were watching a baseball game and bowling. I went to the bathroom. I kind of had a cramp in my hamstring, kind of laid down on the floor, went to stretch but some guy went to pick me up and said, dude, your face is falling off your head. Someone better call 911. Something's not right. And I was so embarrassed. And said, no, no, no. My sister insisted that they call the ambulance. In the ambulance to the emergency room, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. They figured I was just dehydrated. The whole episode with the eye, of course, I, again, didn't tell anyone that. They just said he must be tired or dehydrated. My sister insisted they keep me overnight. What was actually going on is that a small clot had formed in my neck while I was running. And that that had caught something like a shingle in my carotid artery that, so that over the course of the next couple of hours, things just went from bad to worse, that basically the clot got underneath that shingle to, so that the total artery was, the artery was completely occluded. I crashed around two in the morning while I was in the hospital. If I had gone home, God knows, I probably would have died in my sleep. And the, the effects of the stroke were kind of devastated. When I first, I spent like three or four days in the ICU, got transferred to rehabilitation hospital. In the interim there, they were talking to my parents about assisted living facilities. My poor parents and siblings flew in from all over the country. And as unlucky as I was that day, everything since that day, I've been incredibly lucky, not just to have had family to shepherd me through that trauma that day. It also, all by coincidence, the best rehab hospital in the entire world is in Chicago, called the Rehab Institute of Chicago. And they had just started a new program called the Prime of Life program. They had all kinds of technology and innovative techniques that they had theorized, if we could get a young, healthy person who was medically stable and willing to work hard, 
Let's see what could happen if we put them through some rigorous training early in this process. And I slid right in there. So people look at me and say, how did I, John Murphy make this recovery? Well, I've got six sisters, was in 306 marathon shape and just so happened to be on the doorstep of the best rehab hospital in the, in the country. So as unlucky as I have been, I've been incredibly fortunate since that awful day. And that to this day is what motivates me to get the word out about making sure you understand what your cholesterol level is, that you know what your blood pressure is, that you get those things under control. And God forbid, remember that John Murphy to this day wishes that he had known what FAST was instead of being FAST. And FAST is the acronym F-A-S-T, which stands for face, arms, speech, and time, the, 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 quick, the quick test. You know, look at someone's face, is one side of their face drooping or not, ask them to smile. And the arm test is ask them to hold their arms out like, a, like holding a, a tray. And if one of those arms drops off, that too is a warning sign. Ask them to repeat a simple sentence and asking John Murphy to repeat a simple sentence obviously would be a complicated challenge, but the other two I definitely had failed. And that if you get someone to an emergency room within three hours that they can reverse the devastating effects of that, that that stroke is about to have on that individual and that person's family for the rest of their life. Powerful so. and eloquent. That's, yeah. it, it's, it's right there. John Gorman, you had something? Yeah, so um, before we go, uh, John, I just want to tell you uh, a memory I have. And it's funny because like, you didn't even know me. And I was, you know, I was on a plane. I was waiting for New Balance. I was, I was on a plane to New York as one of the shuttles. And I and you were there. You were on the same flight, and you had this like nice suit and nice suitcase. Like you were a really important guy. I was in a t-shirt, you know, baseball cap, you know. And I said, "Wow!" I said, and I walked up to you. I said, "John Murphy, I remember you. I ran for St. Ray's. You ran for Portsmouth Abbey, and you kind of almost kind of looked like you were puzzled, like who is this? How does this guy know me? You know?" But I was just I was just so thrilled to meet you. Um, and, and talk to you for whatever short time it was, uh, you know, I'll never forget it. Uh, Cause I just, I just admired you guys, like you and, you know, Tommy Mortimer, you know, from afar, from like, you know, 40, 50 places back and, you know, the OLP seminary course, you know, I just, and you guys were just, you know, stars. Well, you're kind to say that. I'm glad I got to see Tommy Radcliffe again recently here in Austin while he was here to watch his son compete in the NCAA nationals in Austin, Texas. And was glad that he remembers comments I made to him in the 80s when we bumped into each other in Harvard Square, how much I respected the way he conducted himself and how embarrassed I was for some of my braggadocio showboating on the track. And more importantly, how much I envied the fact that he'd been able to sustain a running career throughout his 30s and 40s when I'd been a yo-yo and an idiot and missed what he had. So, John, I just want to make sure that we don't forget that there's time for me to share that note. Yep, yep. Now's the time. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much for being kind to an old guy on a Saturday morning. But I just wanted to share with you that I'm glad I did this because I was a bit reluctant to participate in a session that might sound indulgently nostalgic for a bygone era on a Saturday morning of a week in which close to 2,000 American families suffered a COVID death and 1.3 million refugees fled Ukraine for points in futures uncertainty. Hopefully our conversation will provide some of our contemporaries a break from these burdens 
And in closing, I'll offer fervent prayer for the children of Zelensky's Ukraine that someday they will have the opportunity to return and run freely through the cities and beautiful countryside of a free Ukraine. John Murphy, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you as the latest guest on the Running Reunion podcast. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your leadership, for your power, your testimony, and your witness. And thank you for sending us off the way that you just have. On behalf of Ron Galuli and John Gorman, I'm Grant Whitney. Thank you again. Thank you.